Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm so glad you're here on the channel that loves atheists. I'm Braxton Hunter, and today we're going to be taking a look at genetically modified skeptic, or Drew, as he talks about some awful things that were uh, part of the culture of his evangelical college or university when he was going through that period of his life. Now, um, if you haven't noticed, if you're a regular viewer, you're in my home right now. That's because the city in which I live is completely covered in ice and about eight inches of snow. And so for that reason, I'm recording here. Um, so welcome to my home. One of the things that I want to say right from the beginning is that of all the atheists that I've responded to on this channel, and there are quite a few, Drew is in a special category of people that are exceptionally likable and who I like. I enjoy his videos, even though I disagree with most of what he says in most of his videos. Uh, I just really like him. I think I would enjoy hanging out with him. And so I, I, I think he's a stand-up guy. I think he's a nice person. And so I just want to say that there is nothing at all personal in this. Um, and though I think that we deeply disagree on this particular issue, there is nothing about this that's meant as personal. And, and I really like Drew. But I won't bury the lead here. In this video, Drew is arguing that a particular aspect of Christian culture or Christianity in general is wrong. If Christianity is true, then most of Drew's criticisms just fall away. Closeness to God is necessary in order to maintain sexual purity. Obviously, the evangelical take on sex is that sex is permissible only within the context of a heterosexual marriage. So, at an evangelical university, just about everyone there wants to have sex, but most think that if they did, they'd not only commit a grave sin, but also possibly ruin their chance of a healthy or godly marriage in the future. Inevitably, though, most, if not all, students acted on sexual urges in some way. By that, I don't mean to say that all students had sex, but rather that most made out with their significant other, engaged in what we called heavy petting, or just sometimes looked at sexually explicit material. Completely normal, healthy behavior for young adults. That's an interesting one. Looking at sexually explicit materials is healthy behavior. First, notice that for Drew to even get into the ballpark of having made a correct moral statement, he has to presume that Christianity is false. If Christianity is true, then fornication is not a healthy practice for young adults. A few weeks ago in a video, I made a comment that implied that Christians think that prostitution and other forms of sex work are immoral. The video didn't hinge on whether or not you agreed with that. However, many people came out of the woodwork to say, wait a minute, there's nothing wrong with sex work. There's nothing wrong with prostitution. Well, of course, if you presume that Christianity is false, you won't think there's anything wrong necessarily with those things. If you presume Christianity is true, you will think there's something wrong with it. So presuppositions and worldview play a much bigger role in this than we might think. But even if we agree with Drew about the falsehood of Christianity, I still don't think that we can grant everything that he says. I'm assuming that when he says sexually explicit material, he's talking about porn. 
If so, he's claiming that it's healthy to look at porn. But is that what the research shows? In a 2016 article from Psychology Today, Stanford professor Philip Zombardo reported on research from multiple sources on this very issue. He says, It may be no coincidence then that porn users report altered sexual tastes, less satisfaction in their relationships, and real-life intimacy and attachment problems. A lot of young men especially talk about how porn has given them a twisted or unrealistic view of what sex and intimacy are supposed to be, and how they then find it difficult to get interested in and aroused by a real-life partner. Now, research does indicate that porn use is considered by more and more people to be morally and socially acceptable. So if your morality is built on what a lot of people think, then you might find it morally acceptable to use porn. But most atheists I interact with base their morality on something like well-being, and Drew did specifically mention healthiness here. Based on the research, Drew is wrong about the healthiness of viewing sexually explicit material, and he has to presume, not argue for, the falsehood of Christianity in order to make the other pronouncements that he does. Now, to be fair, there is another part of the video that we're not covering today, but we will cover in another video in which Drew does list off some things that he thinks strike against the truth of Christianity. But he doesn't so much argue for those as he does mention them to show that the typical thinking you would expect to get in a liberal arts school is out of line with that sort of thinking. But at this point, it's time to find out what's at stake here. Boy, was it not seen as healthy, though. I mean, so many people at my school, myself included, suffered emotional breakdowns after having acted on a sexual urge, even though they hadn't gotten anywhere near having sex. And for those who actually did have sex before marriage, months, sometimes even years of emotional turmoil often followed. Most students' response to this turmoil was to pursue a closer relationship with God, who they hoped would give them the strength they needed to resist further temptation. There was a vicious cycle in play here. Students were expected to refrain from acting on normal sexual urges and were constantly encouraged to seek God in their lives in order to have his help in overcoming temptation. Then, when a student inevitably acted on their normal, healthy sexual urges even once, they'd feel an enormous sense of guilt and shame. Naturally, they'd spend extra time in devotional study and prayer where they'd resolve that what we're taught in chapel and church is correct. We're all too weak and unrighteous to live up to God's standards. The only solution is to seek God more fervently than ever before, or else relapse into sin, which could ruin our lives. By the way, if a student was not ashamed of their sexual activity, but the university staff found out about it, they'd be required to meet with chaplains or advisors who would tell them to repent and seek God, or risk academic suspension. Obviously, though, reading, believing, and teaching the Bible wouldn't stop anyone from having regular, healthy sexual needs for the same reason that reading, believing, and teaching the Bible does not stop anyone from feeling hungry. It's just a part of our biology. Eventually, most students would act on their sexual urges again, and the guilt would worsen because they worked so hard to prevent that from happening, only to learn that they're still incapable of living up to God's standards. So practicing Christians who identify personally as Christians violate their own moral standards, feel bad about that, and seek to get closer to God as a result. This is a great example of the primary problem with Drew's take as I see it. If Christianity is true, this is an incredibly powerful and beneficial response. And if Christianity is false, it's true that these kids experience turmoil over their actions unnecessarily. But there's another problem to this thing that puts it all into perspective. Drew's comments are extremely one-sided. If you listen to him, liberating these kids from biblical sexual ethics will result in their being at peace, 
they'll have a stress-free sexual experience and they'll be fulfilled. But we all know this isn't true, like at all. Whatever you want to say about biblical sexual ethics, if followed, they do prevent issues that can be psychologically damaging and life-altering. If you're an ex-evangelical out there, I'm sorry to sound like your youth pastor, but there are some dangerous things at play, obviously. Let's look at the numbers. A 2014 study of college students titled Sexually Risky Behavior in College-Age Students found that 33% had sexual intercourse with 2 to 5 individuals and 15.5% between 11 and 20 sexual partners. 50.9% had unprotected vaginal intercourse not using condoms and of those 45.8% either do not insist on condom use or only use them occasionally. 22.1% do not insist on using condoms for sexual intercourse, and 24.7% responded that they sometimes insist on a condom use. 47.2% are not worried about getting AIDS. 41.3% are not concerned with genital lesions. 42.4% would rate themselves as not being very knowledgeable about sexually transmitted infections. 12.4% of the females had unintended pregnancies, and overall, 74.9% would not feel comfortable discussing their sexual activity with their mother. 58.1% use alcohol prior to or during sexual intercourse. I could provide data on the trauma, depression, anxiety, and general existential crisis connected to STDs, pregnancy, sexual betrayal, and so forth, but frankly, I think that this is common knowledge and not very controversial. Now, one could respond that not all will experience one or more of these issues, but of course, not all Christians will experience the ramifications that Drew thinks comes with avoiding sexual activity or of trying and failing to remain sexually abstinent. And if we compare the possible negatives, I think the Bible wins hands down in most cases. Obviously, though, reading, believing, and teaching the Bible wouldn't stop anyone from having regular, healthy sexual needs for the same reason that reading, believing, and teaching the Bible does not stop anyone from feeling hungry. It's just a part of our biology. So reading the Bible won't stop people having sexual needs. Actually, I think a more accurate way of saying this is reading the Bible won't stop people having sexual desire. And that's perfectly fine. It's never been claimed that reading the Bible will stop people having sexual desire. Nor is there anything wrong with experiencing sexual desire. There's nothing wrong with sex. Sex is a good thing. The biblical teaching isn't that we should kill sexual desire. It's that we should exercise self-control and place sexual activity in its proper context. But Drew talks about sexual needs throughout the video. And he even uses hunger, our need for food, as in some way parallel to this. But there's actually a fairly lively debate about whether our drive for sex is a desire or a desire and a need. Most people with a healthy sexual appetite will grant this and say, well, yeah, it's a desire and it's a need, of course, and maybe so. But this is a much more complex and nuanced question than Drew represents here. He gives the impression that it's a need on the level of our hunger for food. Is that right? Clearly not. If you don't satisfy your desire for food, the need you have for food, you'll die. You won't die if you don't have sex. If you don't have oxygen, you'll die. You won't die if you don't have sex. If you don't drink water, you'll die. You won't die if you don't have sex. Maybe Drew means that it's a need in the sense that we talk about education as a need. You won't die without it, but it might be very important to living a fulfilled and meaningful life. But then there are many people who live very long lives without ever having sex and report experiencing great fulfillment and meaning in their lives. 
I'm not convinced that sex isn't a need in some sense of the word need, but it's a much more complex and nuanced issue, as I've said, than what gets discussed here from Drew. Further, describing sexual desire as a need on the level of our hunger for food could actually have some pretty dangerous outcomes. For instance, if someone is impoverished to the point that they can't get food and they steal the food, we view that moral paradigm a bit differently than we would someone wealthy stealing food. Should we view sex the same way? If someone isn't receiving sexual gratification, which of course is supposed to be a need like this, then do we view them as understandable and having an understandable excuse for taking it? If a couple has the presumption of monogamy and one of them doesn't feel sexually fulfilled, are they justified in infidelity? And even if you answer yes to that question, you can easily imagine sexual drives that result in criminal sexual behavior. But to present sexual desire as similar to our hunger for food may make people feel justified in those kinds of sexual actions. But let's give Drew the benefit of the doubt and say he just used a bad example, because I think what he really means to get at is that it's dangerous to abstain from sex or to try to abstain and fail to abstain from sex for psychological reasons. This was a crushing blow to self-esteem, which usually motivated even further devotion to God. The cycle would repeat from there, often continuing for the rest of a student's time at the university. With each repetition of the cycle, students' self-esteem would decrease. I can't tell you how many people I knew who fell into self-hatred, who constantly called themselves weak and unworthy of love, who struggled with self-harm and even suicidal ideation just because they continued to have sexual needs even though they were a good Christian. Don't worry though, many of us were told, because even though you aren't worthy of love, God still loves you, and that's where you can find your worth. This cycle creates dependence on this form of Christian ideology. It takes a fundamental human need and convinces you that meeting that need is morally wrong. Then, when you inevitably try to have that need met, this ideology blames you and insists that the only way to stop acting on that need is to embrace the ideology even harder. This cycle becomes identical to a typical abusive relationship when the student's self-worth is found primarily in God's love since God's supposed word has gaslit the student into believing that their own healthy human needs are the source of the student's problems. Closeness to God does not enable sexual purity, and believing it does can be extremely psychologically damaging. Once out of my evangelical university, I, like many others, have come to understand the teaching of this piece of Christian ideology for what it actually is, abuse. This is certainly heartbreaking, and Drew, I don't doubt it. In fact, I've seen it, but what it tells me is that Christian mentors and leaders need to do a better job of talking with people about their sexual mistakes. But again, this is kind of one-sided. Drew is highlighting what can happen with some college students who try to abstain or try to abstain and fail to abstain without talking about what can happen with some college students who decide not to abstain. In an article from the Journal of Sex Research entitled, Risky Business, Is There an Association Between Casual Sex and Mental Health Among Emerging Adults? The researchers reported, A greater proportion of men, 18.6%, compared to women, 7.4%, reported having had casual sex in the month prior to assessment. Structural equation modeling indicated that casual sex was negatively associated with well-being and positively associated with psychological distress. 
gender did not moderate these associations. For emerging adult college students, engaging in casual sex may elevate risk for negative psychological outcomes. So while we can certainly appreciate the psychological difficulty that comes along with students who try to follow God's mandates for sexual ethics and fail, and we can seek to provide as many sympathetic and understanding and accepting Christian leaders and mentors as we possibly can, we also need to take a look at the other side of this thing. This is a multifaceted issue, and even if you take Christianity off the table, I think that biblical sexual ethics still provide the safer path. That said, to take biblical sexual ethics off the table is to concede far too much. Even in light of all of this, Drew is presuming the falsehood of Christianity to even get what he's saying off the ground. If Christianity is true and the Bible represents what God wants for us when it comes to sex, then Drew's criticisms just fail. Drew claims closeness to God does not enable sexual purity. Of course it does. Even if you don't believe that it's true. For instance, every day what I do is I get up, I talk to the Lord in prayer, I open my Bible, I read a section of scripture, a couple chapters, wherever I'm at in God's word. Uh, I write down some thoughts. I write down some things I'm grateful for. I go over a lengthy prayer list where I pray for people like Drew, people that I interact with online, also my family, my school, and uh, a number of other things, the Christian movement all around the world, people that don't know the Lord, people that are in poverty, people that are sick. And I go through all of that. And, and, and then I ask God to reveal to me places in my life where I could be uh, weak or where I'm in danger of falling short. And uh, then I end by getting into my car and on my way to work, I think about these things in greater detail. And sometimes I even sing. I know you might not want to imagine it in too much detail, but believe me, I sound like a rock star. But I can tell you from personal experience that when you start your day off that way, it's a lot less likely that you're going to fall into particular sins that easily beset you. Now, you might think, well, you're just self-indoctrinating every day. That's fine. That just shows that even from a secular point of view, you can see why closeness to God, whatever you make out of the term God, can result in sexual purity. But let me parody Drew's final comment here. Sexual liberation does not lead to fulfillment or psychological peace. And believing that it does can be extremely psychologically damaging. I've come to see the promotion of this ideology as dangerous. 